surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe your ways, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken and there will be no healing. This is the words of Solomon recorded here. And as I was praying over these words that the Lord would lead us into his understanding, I I couldn't help but think about how people introduce themselves in conversation today. Um, often when we engage in conversation, we have fallen to a, a culturally acceptable way of communication. Uh, usually it's pretty habitual. Usually we ha- develop these habits of attitude that we don't even realize are taking place. And uh, for instance, whenever somebody engages in a conversation, if you're in New York City, usually they're going to say, how you doing? You know, they ask you this question, like, how are you doing? And you're going to answer with a response to either that specific question, or you're going to say good or something along those lines. But more often than not, I've been hearing two common responses to the simple greeting of, how are you? And usually you'll hear something like, busy, right? Or you'll hear somebody say, like, crazy busy. Or you'll hear somebody say, tired, Have you heard that? I hear that all the time. Usually teenagers, they're going to be like, tired, you know? Well, if you'd go to bed earlier than three o'clock in the morning, you'd probably not be tired. But but I think about these conversational habitual responses that people develop. And and there's really, you know, more importantly than that simple response that I think that does let us see into the heart of the person who responds in that way. And I think what Solomon writes here in Proverbs chapter 6 addresses this directly. Why do people say busy or tired uh, in response to such a simple greeting, a simple hello or how are you doing? Uh, These responses actually reveal a lot about a person, a lot about a person's character and a lot about what uh, what their activities are like. In the case of someone answering busy, Uh, whenever you ask this question. It's usually meaning several things. And maybe you'll agree with this, maybe you won't, but maybe their response, when they actually answer with busy, they legitimately are acknowledging that they are actually way too busy uh, 
almost too busy to control their own priorities. They are legitimately way too busy. Uh, they, they are people pleasers. They can't say no. They function according to pressure and not priorities. I had mentioned this before that uh, Howard Hendricks, who wrote that book that I've recommended to each of you, Living by the Book, it's a, it's a wonderful tool book on how to read the Bible. And in that book, he says that I function according to priorities and not pressure. There's a big difference. If we, we know what it's like to live in accordance with pressure and not according to priorities. And living according to priorities demands that you have to say no at some point. And we need to be people who are willing and able to say no. When somebody says that they're too busy, it usually indicates that they have selfish motives. They're probably pursuing money, position, or even material possessions. Whatever it may be, something is jamming their schedule to be overly filled. And I was so thankful when I took, a, uh, I took one of the um, biblical interpretation classes. And in that class, the professor said, if, if you sit down as a pastor and you uh, essentially itemize your time, and you could do this in your own life. Sit down. It's a good thing to do. It's a good practice to do. You sit down and, and you, you're honest with how much time you spend doing certain things. Just log your week. How much time do I spend sleeping? How much time do I spend driving, eating with my family at work? And it, you'll see something very interesting. There's only so many hours in a week, right? We don't get any more than that. Uh, we don't get any less than that. And if you, if you, if you lay out your hours, the, what you do throughout the week, and you come up that you're actually trying to do more in the time that you have been given than you have time allotted, this professor said, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. You're essentially telling God that I need more time than you have designed. And it requires an assessment of our priorities. It requires that we would say no in certain areas, or we would begin to uh, thin the schedule somewhere. It demands it. Sometimes it's just selfishness. People say, I'm busy. Um, we live in a society that's actually addicted to constant activity. Would you agree? It's a constant go, 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 go. It's a constant schedule filler. And to actually take time to not do anything is seen as culturally backward. And really, it's unacceptable. Uh, you're instantly viewed as lazy. Um, but they are actually, when somebody answers this way, they're actually self-conscious of their laziness. And they may be saying that, no, I'm actually not too busy, that they're not busy at all. But they want to answer that way in order to avoid the stereotype of being lazy. Um, they want to give this perception that they are busy, that they are filling their schedule, that they're being good stewards of their time. Now, in the case of someone answering with tired, this one's more interesting to me. And you say, well, where in the world are you going with this with regard to Proverbs chapter 6? Just hang on and just hang in there, because I think what Solomon is addressing directly is this very situation. When somebody says that they're tired, it could be a guilty recognition of someone's own laziness. It could be saying that, look, I'm, 
I'm, I'm tired because I know that I should be doing more, and therefore I want to seem or appear like I'm actually overly busy. The inference is that they are busy beyond their body's ability to keep up. Now, there's sin in that, too. Uh, there's sin in being a workaholic. Uh, it could be a point that, you, you know, you're working too much. Um, I've, when I was younger, I experienced this. I went until I literally dropped. You know, have you ever been there whenever you are working so much that all of a sudden, some, some time in the middle of the day, you literally just, your body says, I'm done. You're, you're done. You hit the wall. You, you're down. And then you sleep for, you know, however many hours it is to, your body says, you need to recoup. That's a good indication of God saying, look, you're doing too much. You need to, to focus your, your attention on your priorities in, in other areas. Um, we may have all been there, but usually when someone answers this way, for the most part, our generation is filled with people who are, who are tired and crazy busy, or what I would like to say, lazy busy. They're lazy busy. Um, they've got so much going on, and they're really not doing anything. Uh, you, know, you know, they're really not accomplishing anything, but their schedules are packed, you know. Uh, if you ask them, what did you do last week? They'd have to, they're like, uh, I really don't know. So, so this is ultimately here in Proverbs chapter six, this is about motives. And this is about the character of God. This is about us as believers, making sure that our priorities line up with God's character and his revealed will. That's what we're going to see here tonight. Vody Bauckham, he said this, Quote, when people ask me how I'm doing, I answer better than I deserve. I think that's a good response. When somebody asks you, hey, how you doing? You say, better than I deserve. And that really is the case. You know, God's grace is so over. Think about it. You wake up in the morning. You put your feet on the ground and hit the ground running. You, you, you jump into the shower. You do what you got to do to get ready. You throw your clothes on. You jump in the truck, jump in the car. You take off to work. You go through your daily work schedule. When you come home, you do your thing again at night. And then it is that same way regimented throughout the week. And oftentimes we don't even think about, wow, God has given me the day. I, I am doing better than I deserve. It is his grace that allowed me to wake up this morning. The answer should always be, much better than I deserve. And then you add on top of that, not only did he give you your breath and your day, he saved you. What an infinite, wonderful God we serve. Uh, now, I need to make a point here as well. Largely, our society pushes the pursuit of great financial gain in order to uh, secure lifetime luxury and leisure. What I mean by that is, um, especially today, we see this massive push in the younger generation to, to secure a high-class retirement. Usually, sitting on a beach somewhere to live out one's days. And, and I, when I say this, I, I legit, I, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this because there's, there's a lot of pastors who end up retiring and they leave everything and they move somewhere, you know, they're sitting on a beach somewhere in the Phoenix area and they're, they're, they're living out their days just in ha happy, quiet time. And, and I, the more I study the Bible, I'm almost entirely convinced that this is completely unbiblical. Should we, let me, let me clarify this, okay? Should we enjoy what God has given to us? 
and those things that he has prospered us with, most assuredly. That's true. That's biblical. You know, a man should enjoy the work of his labor. Uh, he, he should enjoy what God has prospered him with. But here's the big difference, and this is what we're going to see. We recognize that he is the source. He is the source of these wonderful blessings in our lives. Not merely, as I see so often today, that God is just a means to the end. But he is the end to the means. I spent some time on Facebook this afternoon, which is a dangerous and scary place on a Sunday. I never realized how many absolutely raunchy uh, ads come across that social media site. Does anybody else have to deal with that if they're looking at that? Because these ads come through there. It's really just grotesque. I'm so glad that I don't spend much more time on there. But I was looking and seeing how many people actually believe that if, if they somehow acknowledge God on their, their feed, that he will bless them in some way. See, that's looking at God as a means to the end and not God as the end to the means. Ultimately, everything in our existence is about him. So let's look at these things tonight in, in, this, in this text. In the first five verses, we see honesty or truth being a man or a woman of your word. If you commit to something, make sure that you fulfill it. And more specifically... With regard to verses 1 through 5, don't take someone else's debt onto your own. That's, you say, well, how is this in the Bible and why is it here? The second thing we're going to see is in verses uh, 6 through 11. And if we have time, we're going to get to verses 12 through 15. Uh, in verses 6 through 11, we're going to see the sin of laziness. And he says, Solomon says, consider the ant. And in the uh, verses 12 through 15, we're going to see motives molded according to God's character. So number one, the first heading, honesty, truth, uh, being a man of your word. My son, if you have become surety, that's the key word, for your neighbor, have given a pledge to a stranger, uh, Conrad Willard records that if we inadvertently have guaranteed the honesty of someone we do not know by guaranteeing integrity of a friend, then we should ask to be released from such a pledge immediately. He's talking financially. If we say that we're going to take someone else's debt on without interest, uh, without usury, it's an unwise principle. You need to go back to that person and say, I'm going to get out of this right away because I don't think this is wise. Don't take someone else's debt on. And the laziness and taking on and debt, laziness and over amounts of debt are actually linked together. We're going to see here in Proverbs chapter 6. Anything less, notice that man, in verse 2, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, you did it yourself. You made a commitment to this. Now you should stick by your word. You should do what you said that you're going to do. If you've been snared by the words of your mouth, if you've been caught with the words of your mouth, again, stick to it. Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. That's another key word. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. So now he's holding you to what you have said. 
He expects you to release him from his debt if he, if he forfeits that, if he, if he fails to pay that debt back, you're going to have to pay it. You can see how this would be very filled with folly. If you agree to take on someone else's debt, what in the world is going to keep that person, especially a stranger, uh, in the case of Israel, someone outside of the family of Israel, what's going to keep them from, from holding, <laughs> holding, you, holding themselves to that, command, to that commitment? They're going to forego that and they're going to make you pay the debt. It's silliness. Go, uh, verse number three, since you have come into the, neighbor, the hand of your neighbor, go, humble yourself and importune your neighbor. That means, look, you, you got yourself into this mess. You need to go to that individual and you say, no, I'm backing out of the deal. This is not going to work. Do it right away. Give no sleep to your eyes. Don't wait on it. Don't sit on it, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Just get away from this. Well, get away from what? As I've alluded to, it's financial uh, indebtedness. Not that it's your debt. You're promising to be a surety. You're backing another individual's debt. That's what the surety means. It means an art pledge. It means pledged to be or do something. Let me read some verses to you. And, and I, I hope to amplify the significance here as we see what Jesus Christ did. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15, Solomon says, He is a guarantor or a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. You're going to put yourself into a precarious financial situation. Proverbs 17, 18. A man lacking in sense pledges and becomes, in the presence of his, in the presence of his neighbor, he becomes a guarantor. He becomes a financial backer. The foolish here is making oneself, the foolishness here is making oneself responsible for another person's debt and pledging to pay it if the other defaults. Are you beginning to think about something right now? I hope that you are. I hope that as I'm reading this debt-debtor language, that your mind and your heart is going someplace else. Because that's what we're going to aim for here. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 16. Take his garment when he becomes surety for a stranger and for foreigners. Hold him in the pledge. Uh, we're uh, interesting custom in the Middle East. If someone did this, if someone became a surety for their neighbor, they would take off their garment as a sign of this pledge. And they would hand the garment over to the one who was uh, providing the payment for the one in debt, but they would always have to bring that cloak back. They would have to bring that coat back by the end of the day. It was a symbol. It was like signing a contract. Um, and, and Solomon records it in Proverbs 20, verse 16. Garments were common security for a loan such as this. In Proverbs 22, 26 through 27, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors of debts, if you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from among you? That's recorded in the word of God. It's a serious thing we're talking about here. It's not just isolated in Proverbs chapter 6. It's recorded throughout the book of Proverbs that this financial responsibility should be to the debtor, to the one who is in debt. It should be theirs alone. Um, they should work to repay the debt. Okay? Give to those in need and lend in usury. If you have to do this, if you have to support this person, 
this man, this creature born after Adam, this sinner. Remember that. Total depravity does play into this, okay? If you're going to have to support him financially in any way, give to that man, don't secure his debt under your name, or loan to him an interest that he could then build that back. There's a good financial principle there. Um, and the Bible also advises about high interest rates. You shouldn't do that. It's not, not right to have overly high interest rates. But the principle is reflective. Now, this is a key point. I hope I didn't lose you with all that. The principle that Solomon is talking about here is reflective of the fickle condition and inability of man. What is keeping that man, if you buy his debt, what is keeping him from paying a penny? There's really nothing. You're going to get had. It's an unwise business decision. You're, you're taking on the debt of a man who cannot pay. Man is good at taking on more than he can afford. Would you agree with that? Man is really good at that. We're good at signing on the dotted line on the here and now and, and saying, yeah, we'll pay it later. Men lie. They say they'll pay certain things whenever they don't. They can't afford it. Now check this out. No greater antecedent or antithesis or fulfillment of this, no greater antecedent to this is evident than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Solomon is warning against this. Don't do it. This is just financial. But Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 says, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now think about all that is included in what was recorded there in the book of Hebrews. Jesus himself took the debt that we could not repay. He himself became poor at the incarnation. He took on human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life in order that he would pay the debt of people who could not pay that debt. Jesus Christ did exactly the opposite of what Solomon is saying here in Proverbs chapter 6. He became the guarantee. You know what a guarantee is. You know, a guarantee is a stamp it on the box. It's, it's good as gold. The only thing is, if you have a guarantee from a man, it's not a 100% guarantee. I don't care who, who it is that's selling you the guarantee. It is not a 100%. You hear these ads all the time. This is a... This is a great ad campaign, you know, money back guaranteed, right? And, and you never get all your money back, ever. There's usually shipping costs or taxes here or something. You never get it all back. Guarantees with man do not work. But when Christ guarantees, when God guarantees, it's a better covenant. It is surety. It is paid. I mean, think about that with your salvation. You could not pay this debt. You could not pay your way out of this. So Christ paid it for you. How wonderful is that? Jesus, the Lord in the flesh, is able to pay our sin debt. Jesus took on something that we could never pay. Never pay. Our sin debt is guaranteed, promised, paid for, propitiated. It has been made in the blood of Christ, the better covenant. 
I like what Job says. Job, all throughout the book of Job, you find these little golden nuggets of truth. And in Job chapter 17, verse 3, Job says, lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. He's talking to God. He says, who is there that will be my guarantor? Who is there? It's like Job. We know what happened with Job. His whole family, all of his children die. He gets covered in boils. His wife says, curse God and die. Then his friends come and say, well, you must have been a pretty bad sinner for God to do this to you. And Job is just warring with his friends, with the world, with everything that's going on. And he finally says to God, who is going to be my guarantor? These men will fail. Who is going to be my guarantee? Who is the promise even Job, which is the, probably the oldest book in the Bible, Job was looking to the one who would be the guarantor, the one that would mark his salvation, sure, paid for, done, and bought. Deliver yourself from such a thing. Now, we as men, we should deliver ourselves from this, but notice the infinite wonder of Christ who took on human flesh, took on debt that we could not pay in order that we might be set free. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What a wonderful verse. Believers are rich in salvation, rich in forgiveness, joy, peace, glory, honor, majesty, and grace because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 6. Somewhat of a transition, a little bit of a change, but these two ideas are linked. Because usually a debtor, someone that owes a lot of debt, usually who wants to see that debt expunged, somebody that wants to see this debt paid for by another, usually they're pretty lazy. Usually. So what does Solomon do in verse 6? Go to the ant, O sluggard. (laughs) Just think about what Solomon's doing. He says, look at what has been created. In fact, not just look at what's been created. Look at the, one of the smallest, tiniest little creatures that God ever made. The ant. You think to yourself, well, what in the world could we ever learn from an ant? And Solomon says, look at the ant. Watch the ant, you sluggard. What's a sluggard? Doesn't that word just kind of like stick here, you know, whenever you say sluggard? It's just like a, a word that just has repulsiveness built into it. Because whenever I say or think about that word, I picture that slimy, nasty little creature that bloop, 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 real slow and slimy slips across the ground, the slug. What exactly does a slug do? What is his purpose? I mean, aside from spreading bacteria on plants and eating things out of our garden, what exactly do they do? Really nothing. And it's it's a good indication. Solomon says, look at the ant, look at the sluggard. What a stark comparison. The ant is an industrious little creature. A sluggard. It's escargot. Isn't that slugs? No, that's snails. Yeah, snails. Same thing, whatever. (laughs) The ant is small but mighty. Thousands of hours of movies and documentaries have been made about the ant. The ant can lift us, you know, ever since we're this big, we're told that ants can lift 10 times their own body weight or 10 times their own mass. They're abundantly industrious. And Solomon describes this, observe her ways and be wise. A sluggard is compared to a lazy person. An ant is compared to an industrious person doing what they have been created to do, which having no chief, verse seven, there's nobody cracking the whip over an ant. 
There's no one waking up in the morning and, okay, I need to blow Reveille and I need to call the ants to order. No, they, they wake up on their own. They do what they're supposed to do because they're instinctively meeting what God has called them to do. They have, no one needs to wake them up. They've got no chief, verse 7. They've got no officer, no ruler. There's no one driving the ants. No one prepares her food in the summer. No one gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie, O sluggard? You, work, you slug. It's, it's a worthless person. Laziness is, the stark contrast that Solomon is laying forth here is that laziness is contrary to God's design. Laziness is not the way God designed us to be. God did not design us to be lazy. Sluggard is literally someone who is slothful. What's a sloth? Has anybody ever seen a sloth? They're a speed demon, aren't they? A sloth is that interesting animal that just moves just ever so slowly. It really has no place to go at all. And everyone in this room knows a slothful person. They just have one gear, first gear, and that's it. And they move about their lives this way. Some people are created that way. Some people, we need those kind of people because they're very patient. But when it comes to working for the glory of God. You don't want a slothful person. We're not created to be slothful or sluggards. Notice that there's a comparison made here in verse 9. How long will you lie down? When will you rise from your sleep? A sluggard is, is a lazy person. They say a little sleep, a little slumber, just a little bit of the folding of the hands. You know, they're, they're, just, they're content with just continual rest. I don't want to break a sweat. I don't want to break a nail. I don't want to do too much. I don't like blisters on my fingers. A little folding of the hands to rest and your poverty will come in like a vagabond. It'll come in like a man that is armed. It'll come in, your poverty will, will be like uh, the need, need like an armed man. It'll be fast and swift. It'll all be pulled out from underneath you. And these can be shown in more the ways than just financial uh, depravity. It, it, it's not just going to reveal itself financially. It can be, um, we, we know many people who, who financially are very well off, but they're very lazy. They, they, they have accumulated great wealth, but they do not work. They do not work hard for it or, 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 or maintain these things. They, these, this poverty that Solomon is talking about here, it could be something like family. I, I think back to my days in aviation. You know, Aviation was not a very physical task, you know, tasking endeavor. You were sitting. And, and a lot of times pilots would, would joke about being just a, a bus driver in the sky. You, know, you would just, you know, fly around and you, you sit. People take you from the airport. You go to the hotel. You, you live out of the suitcase. You're traveling all over the country. And I would say two out of three pilots were divorced. The family was in shambles. Because they're never home. They have all that they could ever want in the world. They've got a big fat checkbook. They've got nice cars, nice houses, but they're never there. You know, you, this is the comparison that Solomon's making. You can have poverty somewhere else. It could be poverty of peace. You could be just yearning for peace. That old Beatles song that says, money can't buy you love. That's so true. You know, you, you, could, be, you could have these things that that you pursue in the world and you lack peace or lack joy. I was listening to a sermon this afternoon where the man who was preaching 
He was preaching from John 17, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And in John 17, Jesus, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in John 17, he says that they, I might leave them or that I might, that their joy might be full in me, that their joy is full in me. So really the only place that we have joy secured, a lot of people like to say, you got to choose joy today. Well, I would have to say that you're not choosing joy. You may choose happiness, but joy is secured in Christ. Joy is set in who Jesus is. If you're looking for all the happiness and all these things in this temporal world, it'll never bring you joy. Joy is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there could be poverty in other areas. Poverty and joy and peace and family, health, stress can rob you uh, to the point where you lose your health, often leading to an uh, indecent gain. And this is very interesting leading into the next section. So you have this, this individual who is in debt, and usually that indebtedness, looking for someone to pay for that debt, will lead them to a life demonstrating their laziness. And because they are lazy and they have this massive amount of debt, that usually leads to vice. It usually leads to ill-gotten gain. And that's what we see in verse 12. A worthless person. Sharp language. Sharp language. Does anybody have a different set of words there for a worthless person in your translation? What's it say, Jim? A naughty person. The, trans, the, 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 the original language, this means a man of Bilal, literally a man of the devil. This isn't someone who is just a little bit, you know, they've, they've got their priorities a little mixed up and they're trying to work these things out and they're seeking wisdom. That's not what this is talking about. The worthless person. This is referring to someone who is devilish. They, they do not desire righteousness. They only want to heap to themselves ill-gotten gain. This is the sluggard. This worthless person is a man of the devil. Literally, you could translate this, a devil. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth. How will you be able to see this person? Well, their mouth is just dripping perversity. Uh, it's, just, it's just oozing from them. Their, their mouth is poisonous. Why? Because their heart is poisonous. Remember, from out of the heart is what, our, what proceeds out of the heart is demonstrated through the mouth. Um, the mouth will show you that this person is a person who's frankly just doesn't care about righteousness. They're worthless. They're wicked. They have a perverse mouth who winks. This is very interesting, and this still goes on today. Picture this illustrative language that Solomon uses. He winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet who points with his finger, as I'm pointing with my finger, who points with his finger, who with perversity in his heart, there it is, continually devises evil, who spreads strife. And the, the result is in verse 15, and we'll wait till we get there. But these situations still go on today. You can almost picture these individuals, these wicked people who have a debt, who are lazy, who now want to secure monies to pay for that debt through wicked ways. They'll wink and look and speak with their eyes because their mouth is perverse. So they'll wink and look with their friends and they'll, they'll indicate to certain areas that they want to knock off or, or, or rob with simply their eyes. And in this day, what, what was the attire? Was it jeans? 
No, they were probably wearing long robe-like, just like today. They were probably wearing long cloth. And, and a man would do something very sneaky. He would stand, and he would draw on, his, on the ground an indication with, with an arrow with his foot, without anybody really knowing. And whoever he would be standing around would know what the plan was. He would indicate with his feet, and then he would move off from that area and leave that indication pointing at such a direction. And no one would even, he would just brush past and walk past this, this robbery idea, this thievery that was going through these wicked individuals' minds. They would point with their fingers. And every one of us, when we were, when we were kids, and I still do this driving down the road, and my wife gives me the devil for it. I'm, I'm a bad pointer whenever I point down the road. Like, look at the deer, or look at that tractor, or look at that truck. And, you know, and she's like, stop pointing. This I think she gets it from this verse. But we tell our kids don't point, you know, don't point at this. And it may not stem from this, but, but what's going on here is these individuals are indicating that they're going to acquire gain through wicked means. Idleness, as I read in one of, our com- one of my commentaries this afternoon, idleness and vice are allied. Idleness and vice are allied. There will be anger with this perversity. There'll be this ill-natured speech marking the laziness of an individual who is literally pursuing the works of the devil. There's videos of people, I don't know if you've seen these online, there's videos of individuals who, who uh, in, in Europe especially, there's like, uh, you can get a camera for your dashboard and it just records every time your car is on. So, it, you know, if, if somebody gets into an accident or something, it usually has footage. And, and have you ever seen those videos where individuals will be walking across the crosswalk and then they'll just throw themselves onto the hood and, and they'll, they'll act like they got hit by the car in order that they could sue somebody to try to get that ill-gotten means, that Ill, not ill-gotten gain. And, and somebody will be like, hey, I got the camera on, man. I saw that I didn't hit you, you know, and they'll get up and like run away like nothing happened. <laughs> and it's, it's this wickedness, this desire to uh, acquire these, these means. So what's the answer? In verse 15, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. That's regarding this this individual who's pursuing wickedness. What's the opposite of all that we've just read? Very simply, work. Work. Hard, God-honoring, godly work. Did you know that work is ordained? by God. Work is, is, it was ordained by God before the fall. A lot of people will teach and buy into the idea that work was now we're supposed to till the ground with the sweat of our brow because of the fall. Work was instituted through the creation of God prior to the fall. It is a part of being created in the image of God. Listen very closely to this. This is, I just thought this was so wonderful as I was preparing for this. You can, there are people who Have you ever heard this phrase, work hard, work smarter, not harder? If we work with the right motives, uh, there are many individuals who who burn a lot of energy and they don't actually accomplish anything for the glory of the Lord. And this takes place whenever we place our selfish motives before the plan of God. When we think that our work is for us, ultimately, and not for God. Whatever you do, I don't know what each one of you do, but I, I know that you have worked or you, maybe you're retired and now you're, you know, helping with the family and grandchildren and different situations there. But whatever you do, 
1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. Your primary calling to wherever God has you, whatever he has you doing, is for his glory. It's for him, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing. It's not ultimately for you, though God blesses you through these things. Remember, God is not the end to the means, or the means, God does not just provide you uh, these, these things, and he's kind of like the genie in the bottle, you know, you just call upon him so that you can get good stuff. No, he's ultimately the end of everything he has blessed you with. You can't take it with you. I'm not convinced, dear ones, that the servant of the Lord, the pastor, the elder, I'm not convinced, I don't find scriptural evidence um, that the servant of the Lord should labor for a pastor. I'm talking about specifically about a pastor, that a pastor should labor for retirement in order to just sit back and live, uh, live out their days in luxury and relative ease. I just don't see that. I think that, that the servant of the Lord is constantly called to be a testimony for Christ wherever you may be. I'm not saying that retirement is a bad thing. I'm just saying that one, when God calls a person what, to whatever task he has called you to, it's, it's hard, it's impossible for him to just say, well, now you've made it. You know, yes, earthly gain, earthly means, earthly industries and different things that we may retire from. You know who I think of who's not here tonight? Carl. You know, he's retired. And that guy is constantly going to people and being a witness for the Lord. He has friends up and down that street that he sees every day. He walks three miles a day, every day and he talks about that all the time. He said, I walk up and down the street and whoever I run into, I check on them, I see how they're doing, I pray with them, I meet with them. You know, he's, he's retired, but he's not retired. He is still functioning uh, for the glory of God, for the glory of the Lord. We have many men in this church that, and women in this church who do the same thing. This, this demands a biblical work ethic. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, to work, to labor for the glory of God. Work is a part of the pre-fall world, which means it's part of being created in the image of God. When we work, we represent God. He is always watching. And therefore, as what is described here in Proverbs chapter 6, laziness actually distorts who God is. It's a distortion of who God is in his creation. Now, I'm going to give you some verses as we, our time is quickly coming to a close, but I want you to see how prevalent this is even in the New Testament, okay? This is not something that's isolated, this biblical work ethic. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. You can either write these down or try to turn there with me, but I'll read them to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says there and to the Thessalonians, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he, is, he must not eat either. If, if you're not going to work, you don't eat. Uh, this, this is, a, I think, a, uh, a principle, as sad as it is to admit this, this is a principle that needs to be greatly reaffirmed today. You don't work, you don't eat. 1 Timothy 5.8 
But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's sharp, poignant, clear-as-day words. If you don't provide for your family as a man, if you're not... There was, a, there was another post, I hate to keep looking at social media and bringing these up to you, but there was a man who took a picture of his wife sho- shoveling snow from the, from the upstairs window of the room, and he says, I'm so thankful that my wife worked a 12-hour shift, and now she's out shoveling the driveway. And at the end of the post, he said, I should go make her breakfast. I'm thinking, what planet are we in? I, I mean... I can promise you that my wife has never even had to pick up the sh- snow shovel. Could you imagine me saying, hey, Carla, uh, you know, it's, it's getting a little bit late. It, can you make my breakfast and then go shovel the driveway? What, what kind of man are you? We need, we need to recover this, this, this. You need to provide for your house. You need to provide for your family. You need to provide uh, what, to what God has called you to do. John five seventeen, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. God the Father, we expect him to work. We expect him to hear our prayers at any time, right? We expect him to constantly be on call. And, and we, we, re, we rely that he is an active God. And that Christ, when he came, he says, I'm working. Work is good. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 through 38, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers or laborers into his harvest. He's talking about a spiritual harvest. He's saying, he's saying that we need to send these, these leaders of Israel are worthless. They are not bringing in the work that has been called due to them. Pray that the Lord would send out workers, laborers into his harvest. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he actually sends out the disciples to the apostles to share the gospel. And finally, one more Galatians chapter 6 verse 4. Paul says, and this is probably the point of application that I want to emphasize tonight. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 4, but each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Now, now in the context, uh, believers are to test their own life. They're to test and examine their own lives if they are right before God, before assisting others spiritually, before rendering any other spiritual help. They need to examine themselves and see if their own lives are lining up with what the Scripture teaches. So I bring you to Galatians chapter six, verse four, so that you would look at Proverbs chapter six, or Proverbs chapter six, in order that we would simply examine ourselves. Because we look at these truths that are recorded in Proverbs, we kind of go to them and we say, "Yeah, okay, I get it. You know, this is not me. This is for like the really bad guy." I would have to say that as we examine these truths in Proverbs that we would do what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. That we would say, where am I at here? Am I doing what God has truly called me to do? Am I being faithful where God has been faithful? You know, is he calling me to a task that I'm simply saying, yeah, Lord, I'll get to that whenever I'm done with my other 25 items first, you know? 
I'll do that later on in my life. I, right now, I'm kind of just focused on me. Paul says we need to examine our own lives before God. That our boasting would not be in ourselves, but that it would be in the Lord. Look, guys, it's really easy. It's really easy to, especially when it comes to ministry in the church, and maybe with relationships to those family and friends, wherever it may be around our own lives, it's really easy for us to step back and say, I'm just not equipped and someone else will get it. You know? It's, it's really easy to say that, yeah, I know God is calling someone to that area, but it's not me. You know, you know, you know what I mean? We, we, we should be examining our lives according to the Word of God and seeing if maybe there's a point uh, hidden somewhere in our heart where God's really working on us and saying, you know, you need to repent of this. Your priorities are a little bit out of whack. You're a little too busy. You're, you're, you've got something out of line here. Uh, realign according to the word of God and according to the truth. So here's some application. I have, I have four brief points of application. As we saw in the beginning of Proverbs chapter 6, debt is not to be taken lightly. I'm not saying that it's a sin to have debt. I'm not saying that. There are certain things that you just can't have without some kind of debt um, today, especially if you're going to have a house, you can, unless you've got, you know, a gold mine that nobody really knows about and you're paying out cash for that, um, you're going to go into some kind of debt. The problem is taking on debt and saying, I'm not paying for that. That's, a, that's, a, that's sinful. Um, the Bible advises strongly against that. Debt is not to be taken lightly, irregardless. Uh, Financial responsibility is built on living for the glory of God, right? I mean, we, everything we do is for the glory of God. Therefore, whatever debt we go into, it must be, okay, this is, the, this is the pursuit of the direction that God has laid forth in my life, and I believe that he's going to help me accomplish paying this back because I'm going to work hard, right? I'm going to work to pay this off. Much more in, uh Overwhelmingly more important is recognizing that Christ took upon himself our debt of sin and that it was Jesus who bore the very wrath of God in the place of sinners because we had a debt that we could not pay. When we just sit and ponder that for a moment, we, we should be overwhelmed to the point of closing our mouth, taking the time, to bow before him and thank him for that. That requires that we stop for a moment. That we stop and recognize the goodness of God. Number two, consider the order, as we looked at the ant, the slug, the sloth. Consider the order of the created universe and how it reflects God's character. God designed that little ant. He designed that little ant and it's all of its companions who, have, who march in an order and they get a task accomplished and they do their thing exactly the way God has created it. The order of the universe, it reflects the character of God. See that created order and rejoice in that created order. This is not chaos. Could you imagine this was chaos? Could you imagine if all of this was chaos? 
so much more that we could say about that, but I, I won't belabor that point. Number three, work. Work, when done for the glory of God, is biblical. Work that is done apart from the glory of God is unbiblical. So what do we do? Number three, work. Work for the glory of God. This will help you get through your day if you have a job that is just drudgery. If you know that you're there because God has brought you there in his sovereign plan and purpose and he has put you in a place where he knows that he needs you, then accomplish that task for the glory of God. If it's making, what's the word that they used to say? If you have to make 100 million widgets every single day, you'd be the best widget maker that was ever on the face of the planet for the glory of God. Number four, our final point of application. Work without whining. This is hard. (laughs) This is hard. Because I think back to all the ditches that I've dug in my life, and there was a lot of whining and murmuring and complaining going on in those 100 degree days. Uh, But looking back on that, I wish I would have thought about Israel in Numbers chapter 11 when they were just a a bunch of whining complainers walking through the desert. God hasn't, why did he bring us out of Egypt? We have no food. We have no water. Moses, Moses, Moses. And, and, And we are called to a task by the sovereign hand of God. We should accomplish that task without whining and complaining. Because essentially, could you picture this? Well, we'll end here. But can, could you picture this? Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he tells his disciples, stay here and pray. I'm going to go to the Garden and complain. <laughs> and then he walks into the Garden and he says, Lord, this is not what I had in mind. You know? We don't hear even a twinge of that. Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, was before the greatest moment in human history. Where so so much stress that the capillaries in his eyes and face burst, and he sweat blood. And not once did he complain. Not once did he, he, he prayed, Lord, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You will never be called to a task like going to the cross and bearing the sins of the world. And Jesus did it without complaint because he did it in love. Love for his people. If you have love for God, you're going to work for the glory of God. You're not going to be like this man of Bilal, this wicked person. You're going to function and live according to the glory of God because that is exactly how Christ Jesus set the example. Any questions or thoughts tonight about what we've covered? Next week, I hope to visit verses 16, at least verse 16. Uh, We will probably only visit verses 16 